Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. Uh, I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson uh, and today's episode is going to be all about colour blindness and an introduction to colour blindness, I suppose. It's um, one of uh, those topics that I really enjoy speaking about. Um, I am, um, as of course I enjoy speaking about it because I am colour blind um, and it's an intriguing little topic. Um, but this is just to give you a little bit of a flavour for it, a little bit of my own personal experience and some of the background behind it. So show notes for today's episode can be found at blokeology.io forward slash 035. And of course, uh, I'm still uh, really settling in, enjoying sending out the regular emails and newsletters with evidence-based tips and thoughts on uh, how to be a little bit more uh, to be a little bit healthier, a little bit more active, to be a little bit more productive and to kind of help manage our own well-being, um, preferably through evidence-based um, options. So I send that out, the Journal of Blokeology newsletter every two weeks. And if you're interested in signing up for that, just pop over to blokeology.io forward slash journal. So let's crack on and talk a little bit about colorblindness. My experience is that the first thing that um, if you tell someone you're colorblind, they will often, and particularly my kids or others, though my children are now better at this, will start pointing at things and asking you what color they are. What color is that grass? And what color is that post box? And the one of the great things about colorblindness, and it was interesting, is that we all have this extra bit of brain on the top, that kind of... Um, cerebrum that is doing its work and telling us what color things are we have we, there's an incredible amount of learned behavior so we all know that grass is green we all know that post boxes and um buses london buses are red and a lot of there's a lot an awful lot of learned behavior and one of the intriguing things about colorblindness is that my experience of colorblindness isn't actually the same as someone else's experience of colorblindness and uh, of course there is that kind of quickly leads into philosophical discussions because you can't ever be inside someone else and really truly know what they're experiencing. So some people quickly go off in a philosophical bent when they talk about colorblindness. But the uh, the physics of it is, and the, the, med the, the, uh, you know, the physiology of it is, that actually there is more than one kind of colorblindness. Um, and I wonder, I sometimes wonder, given how common colorblindness is, if that's one of the reasons why it just has such a low profile, that people don't really talk about it and it's not really something that everybody's tried to do is because there's just so many variations in how it is experienced. So a very quick kind of, you know, tuppany tour of the actual physiology behind it. And in effect, what we have in the back of our eyes are um, these photopigments that can detect light and they vary slightly and they can detect light at different wavelengths. So, you know, so look, this is, a, I think, a simplification. But if you think of there as being, if you think of it as there being three different types of cones, there's effectively blue cones, green cones and red cones. So we have three different cones. And if you put all those together, it allows us to see all the colours across the spectrum. Now, if we take blue cones and put them aside for them, because colour blindness in that, those cones is really tremendously rare. Um, and doesn't cause a massive problem. Uh, um, well, as I say, a massive, it certainly would cause a problem to those individuals, but colorblindness in those ones is such um, uh, an unusual situation that it probably can de be dealt with uh, separately. The main ones that are affected are, in effect, the green cones and the red cones. 
And there's a, but the problem is, there's a few different ways that you can be affected by that. So you could either have no green cones, and so you don't perceive colours very well across those frequencies at all, or you could have no red cones, or you could just have weak green cones, or you can have weak red cones. So there's already four different types of red green colour blindness. Um, the most common one, and about eight percent, um, I think it works out that around about eight percent of men, and it's are color is colour blind, um, and. I guess the whole thing about that is that's, that seems like an incredible amount of population. I mean, that is, if you want to think about it more dramatically, it's nigh on, I think, around 5 million males in the UK. What, so what would that be? 25, 30 million in the United States are affected by colorblindness. It is less common in women, perhaps only about one in 200, and we'll come on to the reasons for that in a minute. But not all of those men, those 8% of men and those women as well, are having the same experience. And in fact, the most common type of uh, red-green colour blindness uh, is people who've got weak green cones. And out of the 8%, that makes up about 5% of the population. And then the other, the, the rest who are kind of red-weak um, or uh, red-blind or green-blind, if you like, they make up 1% each to make up the 8%. So I happen to know that I am um, protonopic. And protonopic means that I've got no red cones. So I'm one of those 1%. So there's only 1% of men out there who've got the same kind of colour blindness problem as I have. Um, and I know that because I went down to London and was tested formally uh, um, with uh, you know, all the uh, modern equipment. That's the, so the curious thing about it is it's not all the same. So we talk about being red-green colour blind, but everybody's just a little bit different. And so the first thing I'll say is just to tell you a little bit about my experience. And what's important to realise is that I can see red and I can see green. Um, there's no problem with that. But what I'm particularly bad at is differentiating between red and green. So I must live, and I, I can only assume that this is the case, I must live in a slightly less colourful world than you do if you have a normal set of cones. Um, I, can't, I, I'm, that, I think that has to be the case, that I don't see colours quite as well. So the world I live in is slightly less colourful. And for me, what I've noticed is being protonopic and red, having very having no red cones in effect, is that I just I don't see reds terribly well. They don't stand out to me. And I think sometimes I think reds must look to the rest of the world like, you know, when I see a, a yellow or a fluorescent yellow, you know, it really jumps out to you. You can really see it. And I'm guessing that the experience that you're having, having red cones, is just like that. You can really see red. It completely, you know, it stands out a mile. One of the ways I often notice this is if you see somebody on a hillside who's walking across the hillside wearing a red cagoule or a red jacket, um, I usually see them. I pick up the movement. But I think to you, with normal red cones, you know, they must just we must stand out like a beacon, um, and it must be incredibly obvious. Certainly, when I've been out doing like sailing out on um, on a yacht or doing day skippering things like that, I can have terrible trouble with the red and the green um, channel light channel light markers or um, boys. They don't stand out to me. So I think I must live in a slightly less colourful world. But if you get me up close and, and if you put something right in front of me, which is red and green. I can usually tell you which is which. Um, and I guess that's just because they're, the way that the cones work is that there's enough kind of stray pigment in the other cone just into the red frequencies that I just there's just enough there for me to differentiate it. When the light's good, when I'm up nice and close, then actually I can see it really well. Well, I can't say it really well. I, can, I could tell you the difference. But as soon as you move that further away or the light was a bit dimmer or you know it wasn't quite as clear a difference, then suddenly I really struggle. So the classic way that people get tested for this, and I'm sure you've seen these, are the Ishihara dot tests. 
Now, there used to be a set of these that would sit in any GP consultation room and there was a chance to um, to test somebody. And they're the, like, the circles which are full of lots of little coloured dots. Um, and um, I'm hilariously bad at them. So I don't, you know, I'm, I look at those and I go through umpteen of them and see no numbers whatsoever. I can't make out anything. There's just nothing there. And that's a good example that when you put lots of those little dots next to each other, lots of little red dots or green dots or whatever it is, I just can't pick them apart. Um, but actually in real life, perhaps it's not really red and green that gives me the difficulty. It's often more purples, colours which have got red and green in them, but don't actually... Um, uh, and so just subtly change the shade a little. So purple, as I said there, is a good example. For me, purple just doesn't really exist. Um, I just can't see purple. Um, and so I often think, if I see a purple, I think it's a dark blue. And I think that's a really good example of how my red blindness, how I just don't see reds, comes out. It just looks like a slightly dark, slightly off blue. If I get up really close, I can sometimes make it out, but I've never really been convinced. Um, and when you get into all those weird pastel shades, I'm just like, I just can't, you know, you can't, I can't tell these apart. They're just meaningless to me. So um, I'm very quickly excused from any decisions around um, decorating or um, that those kind of home um, home painting colour choices are quickly um, taken away from me. Um, pink is a good example as well. I, I can see pink and I recognise pink things. I, I'm fairly certain. But actually, sometimes I see people who've got pink shirts on and I don't realise that they're pink at all. I just think they're like kind of slightly off-white, <laughs> maybe a little bit greyish. Um, and it takes me a minute to, it often takes me a minute or I have to be really up close unless they're like a really kind of, you know, yeah, kind of neon pink. I don't tend to spot it. I have to, I don't see it very closely. So it, it's one of those weird things that I, there are certain things I clearly don't pick out. Um, and, but there are other sort of um, shades around the fringes where it affects me. But speaking to other guys who are colorblind, that's clearly not the same experience. And they must be the ones who are, you know, got green, who are weak with their green cones or have no green cones. The other, basically, there's only one in eight guys. If I, So 8% of men are colorblind. I'm 1%. I I'm in, I'm in a 1% category. So this other 7% who are colorblind are not having the same experience as me. So even though we can talk about being colorblind, it's just not the same at all. One of the things that's interesting about colour vision is how on earth we got into this position. And I think that in terms of evolution, and it, it very quickly becomes obvious around autumn time why there's a great advantage in having good red-green colour vision. And it's to be able to pick out, you know, you can see how we'd evolve the ability to pick out those luscious red fruits on tree on you know trees and bushes and i cannot see berries on trees very well i mean once you're up close i can pick them out but until then i've got no chance and actually i was reading a book about color blindness recently and there was a quote on there and it was back to the early 19th century and um it was some poor chap who'd actually taken up a career as a fruit farmer which was most unfortunate um and the quote is um, he cannot discern, even in a loaded bush, the existence of red gooseberries among the leaves until he, was, until he has almost approached so near as to be able to take hold of the branch. Rosy apples on a tree, which may be discovered by ordinary eyes at a distance of from 30 to 40 yards at least, are lost to his sense until he has come within 10 or 20 yards of the tree when he can trace out the fruit by its form. Yeah, that's pretty much my experience, I would say. Um, and um, being a fruit farmer would be a very bad choice for me. So the chap who first described 
in some detail and made the first serious study of color vision deficiency was a chap called John Dalton. And that was back at the end of the 18th century in 1794. And he did lots of other things. And he actually was incredibly well known. And you might have heard of him in relation to physics. And he did, most of his work was on the atomic theory of matter. So he was, he's quite well known for that. But he did, you know, like a lot of scientists back in the 18th centuries, they were, they didn't have the strict boundaries and they often roamed into whatever areas interested them. And in his case, he was, um, he discovered that he was colorblind. Um, and he noticed that when he saw blood, uh, he described it as looking like a very dark green. I think is what he said. Now, that's not my experience of um, color blindness at all. When I see blood, what I, my problem I've noticed with blood is that it looks very, I can see the redness of them up close, but it's one of those things that I don't pick out the redness for a dis- from a distance. Um, and so I'm not very good. I'd be absolutely appalling. It doesn't seem to affect me as a doctor too much, but um, I'd be an appalling forensic scientist because I just wouldn't pick out blood splatter or other things. I've noticed it because it just, it just looks, dark almost black to me blood in those circumstances i can't see any redness i've noticed that when you know if someone injures themselves in the house or the cats drag in an animal and there's blood splattered on the floor um, i'll often walk past it and not even see it but the children and my wife will instantly spot the redness and immediately see it so dalton obviously has some kind of color vision problem um rather he he, he did a lot i mean so he's the one that first started describing things um, he also instructed rather macabrely that a post-mortem was carried out on his own eyes because he thought, I think he thought that the actual, the, the liquid inside the eye, the humor, um, would be, um, there'd be a color to it and that could be the effect. Um, and so um, actually, I think his eye was preserved and I think it's still, I think it, certainly bits of it are still at Manchester and they did, um, uh, they were able to do it even 150 years later, they did a genetic analysis on it and they discovered that he was in fact uh, green blind. So no green cones. Yeah, he wouldn't have had the same experience. I mean, it's still often known color blindness is uh, Daltonism. So let's just talk for a moment on the inheritance of colorblindness. How do you get it? Now, one of the interesting things about, so I've said there's a lot of interesting things. One of the things I like about colorblindness is that it's a really good example of X-linked or sex-linked inheritance, an autosomal recessive. And that means it has a very classic pattern and it's, um, you know, of inheritance, which is well known, learned by students of biology and medicine and others as well. So in effect, the, uh, the gene that is affected by so I'll try to go through this. I'm not sure how easy it is to do in a podcast, but bear with me and we'll see if we can summarize it very quickly. The gene that causes colorblindness sits on your X chromosome. So we all have 23 pairs of chromosomes. And most of you who've done basic biology will know that the 23rd pair of chromosomes is a little bit different. And in females, it's an XX. And in males, it's an XY. And so Color vision deficiency, the, the gene that causes color blindness is found on the X chromosome. And men having an XY set of chromosomes, the 23rd pair, have only got one X chromosome and women have got two X chromosomes. So the first thing is if you've got a defective X, and so the, um, the gene that causes it is something called recessive. And that means that if you've got one, if you've got, if you happen to have two X chromosomes and you have one that is affected and one that isn't, you'll be okay. Because it's recessive, it recedes back, it isn't dominant, it doesn't cause you any problems, but you are a carrier. So that's one of the reasons why women do not get colorblindness as often, because you have to have two copies on both X chromosomes of the dodgy gene in order to be affected. Whereas men, they've only got one shot at XY, at an X chromosome, they've got one X chromosome and one Y chromosome. 
if you happen to have the gene on the X chromosome, then that's it. You're toast. You've got it. Whatever condition it is, in this case, it happens to be colour blindness. So if you take someone like myself, I've got an X chromosome, um, which has obviously got a colour vision deficiency gene on it. Deficient gene on it. It's got the. It's got that um, uh, pattern. Um, so if I have children, if I have a son, he will have to get basically mine will, will take one chromosome will come from one pair. One of the pair will come from me, either an X or Y, and one of the pair will come from my wife. So in the case of my, I have a son, he has to get the Y chromosome from me. So that means that the X chromosome that has got my dodgy gene, he doesn't get it. So he's okay. So basically fathers do not pass on uh, with color vision, with color blindness, fathers do not pass on color blindness to their sons. But my daughters, so they're going to get an X chromosome from me. They've got to because I've only got one X chromosome to give them and they're going to get one X chromosome from their mother. My daughters, and I have happen to have a couple, both of them will have uh, an X chromosome which has got uh, the dodgy gene on it. But they'll also have a good chromosome, more than likely, from their mother. So they're both carriers. Um, but because it's a recessive um, gene, it won't affect them at all. Now, what happens is if they have children then um, if they have daughters, their daughters will get one or other of the chromosomes, so there's a 50-50 chance. But if they have sons, they will also get one or other of the X chromosomes, they have a 50-50 chance. If it goes to the son, then there is a 50% chance he will get the dodgy X chromosome and therefore will be colorblind because he'll have to get the Y chromosome from, um, he has to have that X chromosome. That's the only X chromosome he's got because the Y chromosome he's got from his father. So the pattern is that it goes from males to daughters to their sons, but with a 50% rate of it going through to those sons. So if you look back at my family tree, I, my mother is obviously a carrier um, and there was a 50% chance I would end up getting colorblind, being colorblind, and I am. But if you also look back up, you can tell, though he never admitted it, her father was colorblind. Um, and he happened to be a sort of a farmer, a tractor man. Um, but I, they all knew, I think my mother would say that they all knew he was colorblind and had problems, but never really admitted to it. Obviously, if you're a female, and that's why it's so much rarer. You actually have to have a mother who's a carrier and a father who is colorblind. Um, and so that's a relatively uncommon um, combination, and which is why it's only about one in 200 women that are affected. I, I don't actually think I've ever met a woman that was colorblind um, to find out their experience. But there, there's certainly going to be millions of them around the world. Um, but one of the things about colorblindness is it isn't necessarily talked about. And there are a lot of people going under the radar who simply aren't aware that they do have a color vision problem. It's one of those things that, you know, it, I, I, I'm particularly badly affected because I've got no red cones. So I was, when I was a child, I was forever drawing pink elephants, thinking I was drawing them as gray and I would color in my sky purple, um, thinking it was blue. And so it became pretty apparent pretty darn quickly that I was colorblind um, and um, there was no chance of it missing. But with the more subtle um, difficulties, sometimes people can just go through life and you don't, don't know any better. You don't know any different. Uh, it's never picked up. All right, folks, that's nearly enough, I think, of me rambling on about colorblindness. But I was wanted to tell you before I finish about a couple of scientific papers, because we like to talk about papers here at Blocology. That's what it's all about. And you might say, well, all this colorblindness stuff, it's all very interesting, but so what? How does it actually affect people? What difference does it make to your life? Um, and one of the difficulties has been is, I think, with the research around colorblindness is that there isn't a big registry of people that are colorblind. Now, and there isn't, a, they're, they're not, people are not systematically tested for it, um, at least not in the UK. 
I, I'm not sure there are anywhere else in the world either. That's something I'm interested in looking into. I shall try and find out. But if there was a big registry where you could go look at how everyone's colorblind and it was coded into like, you know, uh, protonopic, protonomalous, deuteronopic, deuteronomalous, the, you know, the red, green, color, red, red blind, green blind, red weak, green weak, then you could then compare that on big databases and do the epidemiology and find out if it was likely to be a problem. Be a problem. So one of the things I've already mentioned is that actually blood looks a bit weird um, if you're colorblind. Old Dalton thought that blood looked more green than red. Um, and um, for me, it just doesn't look terribly red. It looks more dark at times. And it's hard to pick out. So one of the obvious things you might say is that isn't there a possibility that people who are red, green, colorblind are going to miss blood in uh, body fluids? And you might think, well, that's not really that important. But it is if you've got cancer. And it is, for example, if you've got blood in your urine or if you've got blood in your poo, because they are they can be big warming, big, you know, big, loud warning bells for colon cancer, rectal cancer, bladder cancer, those sort of things. I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at this for colon cancer. And I think there's a very strong case. And I've tried to put this to people in the past that there, there might be a strong case for, you know, if you're a colorblind, red, green, colorblind for changing the screening process or re re reducing the age at which males get screened for colorblindness. Now, in the UK these days, I think from the over the age of, um, gosh, I think it's 50, but I'd have to check. You um, get sent a bowel cancer screening test and they have a look to see if there's blood in it by doing a little simple chemical test. But I do wonder if there's a possibility that that kind of should be more um, actively pursued for men that are colorblind, perhaps even at a younger age. But anyway, I digress. One of the things that I would say there is, I've not found any papers related to colon cancer looking at that, but there is one paper based on blood about bladder cancer. And it was actually quite a local one to me. It was just down the road in Preston with some urologists. And they looked at 200 men who got bladder cancer. And they then assessed them for color blindness using um, the Ishihara, you know, the dot test, the plate test. And they managed to find out of those, they found 21 blokes who had red, green, or, you know, they were colorblind to some degree, which was about 10.5%. So probably about right. It's a relatively small sample. Um, and in those, about three quarters of them um, who were not colorblind presented with blood in their urine. But um, a slightly smaller number that wasn't significant presented um, in the colorblind presented with uh, blood in the urine. But then what they did was, they looked at how severe the disease was at the point of presentation. And they found that the, the non-colorblind um, group, 69% of them had superficial disease um, and the rest had invasive bladder cancer. But in the colorblind group, 42% had superficial disease with the rest having less favorable histology. So in other words, that was a statistically significant difference. In other words, the colorblind, the colorblind group presented with more advanced disease. I mean, this is a small study, so we'd have to be a little bit careful about drawing too much of a conclusion. There are only 21 cases in the end. And so, but it makes me wonder that actually it's very sort of a proof of concept in that regard, and certainly would be worth investigating further, that whether there's a case for men who, who know that they're colorblind being much more careful about trying to pick up changes in the bodily fluids. So certainly for me, if I got the slightest urinary symptom, um, I'd be very inclined to go and do a urine dipstick and check if there was blood in it. Now, of course, they're handy for me because I've always got them in my doctor's bag, but that's not necessarily the case for all men. Okay, so let me tell you about one more paper, and then I'll tell you about my little Jedi mind trick. 
one of the papers that I've always found really interesting, there was a paper looking at cricketers and colorblindness. And you might think, well, gosh, why are they looking at cricketers? But of course, one of the problems with cricket is that it is a red ball. Now, of course, things have changed a little bit, but there was the white ball game has now appeared. But basically, it's red ball on a green grass. And if you can imagine anything that's less, more likely to cause your problems, it's a red ball on green grass. And I've certainly noticed that when I've played cricket, I have at times had significant difficulties picking out that red ball when it gets lost in the trees. And I think that happens to everybody to some extent. But I've often wondered if it was worse for me because of my colour vision problems rather than someone else. Actually, it's been detected that, in fact, you would expect an incidence of about 8%. Um, if, if there was no impact of colour blindness at all on cricket, you'd expect and you know the, the rough rate to be about 8% of cricketers. But actually, if you look at the... Um, uh, number of first class cricketers who have color blindness the rates have been suggested to be as low as four percent um there was one study based in australia i've looked at this a few times and they found that in 293 cricketers 8.9 percent had color vision uh, deficiencies which of course is about right but only 6.7 percent were playing at the highest levels in those clubs so it did seem to suggest and that was statistically significant as well and it seemed to suggest that color blindness was a subtle influence and was actually holding some cricketing men back a little bit. Similarly, they've looked at batting averages. It's a very easy thing to look at. Um, they did discover in that same paper that the batting average was a little bit lower as well. Though I have to say that wasn't statistically significant. But let's not on this occasion stand in the let that stand in the way of a good story. If you're colourblind and you're trying to make an excuse for your lower batting average, one of the interesting one of the things that was really good about that study is that they discovered that 42 percent of men in the study didn't know they had color vision deficiency 42 percent so you know that's an incredibly high number so of all those people out there who've got color vision problems really high number of them don't did had no clue that that was actually a problem whatsoever Okay, so last thing, my Jedi mind trick. And this is something that has made me realize that I talked about right at the very start about the fact that a lot of what we do is learned behavior. And as you go through life, you learn what colors things are. You know that the little, you know, the, uh, you know, the road traffic signs, if the triangle and it's got a rim around it, then that's red. Now, the red doesn't jump out to me. I have to recognize the sign, but I, I know it's red. And someone asked me what color it was. I wouldn't hesitate. Um, but I have discovered that if I know I discovered this a few years ago, I think it was when I was down in London thinking about when I was getting tested um, in more detail, that actually if I stare at something which I know is red from a particular distance, like a post box or a London bus, that actually I can I can do this. It and it takes quite a lot of effort, but I can do this thing where actually I can suddenly think it looks green to me, that I suddenly realize the bus is actually green. Um, and it's a bit weird. And I think what is going on is that I can't actually tell the bus is red from my in terms of the the light that's hitting the pigments at the back of my eye in my retina. I don't actually know it's red. It could be just as easily be green. But the learned behavior, the learned response, the cogni cognitive sort of overlay tells me it's red. And that's so powerful. It's actually incredibly difficult to overcome. So, in fact, if somebody drove around with a dark green bus, I probably would take me quite a while to notice because, and I, would, I might well tell you it was red as well, because I just wouldn't pick it up at all. Um, and it kind of, and I guess that's part of the reason why people go through life and they gradually, you know, they're perhaps less and less likely to realize that they are got a color, they are color blind, is because you, as you go through life, you learn more and more what the colors things are, and it becomes less and less of a factor. However, I think the, you know, as the bladder cancer paper showed, it's not something which isn't. There is a. There are. A, there are. There are some implications, and there are certainly some. Certainly some implications for your career as well. 
you know, things like um, sometimes some jobs in the military, bomb disposal, obviously, um, and uh, piloting, commercial pilots, other jobs like that. So certain engineering roles are not going to be appropriate. So if you've got uh, sons, daughters, you think there's any possibility of them having a color vision problem, uh, get them checked out. At least it might, you know, might save them from disappointment later. It's not like, you know, so it can be a slightly fun thing to have, even though it's slightly annoying in that some careers might be shut off. It doesn't really have that much of an impact on your life. And it's nice to know. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again.